he poured out himself to death and made intercession for the transgressors. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't think that a lot of the ideas about God that float around our contemporary American culture match what we see in scripture or in the ancient world. I think the average American tends to picture God more like a cosmic Santa Claus, the big guy upstairs just waiting around for me to ask for something. And if I'm really good, maybe even just kind of good, and I can rub some kind of magic lamp called prayer and God will jump into action ready to answer my beck and call. Even devoted Christians, I think, have at times adopted a rather familiar posture towards God. We sometimes prefer to see God as our buddy rather than the all-powerful creator and judge of the universe who holds our very existence in the palm of his hand. And yet, this posture toward God, the posture whereby we feel we can talk with God whenever we want, I don't think that's actually off base. But there's a fine nuance to maintain if we are to get to the practice of walking and talking with God in the right way. C.S. Lewis's book, The Discarded Image, is a study of the conceptual infrastructure underlying uh, medieval and Renaissance literature. I think it's a profound book, and it's hugely influenced my own thinking. Lewis opens chapter one with an epigraph from the educational writings of Richard Mulcaster. The quotation says this, the likeness of unlike things. Now Lewis uses this framework to describe how it is that the beliefs of medieval Christians and those of what he calls the savage pagans might seem similar on the surface, but when one digs down, one sees that they are based on entirely different foundations. And I think the practice of familiarity with God that we see in contemporary American culture and in traditional Christianity is likeness. It's the likeness of unlike things. Both wish to practice a conversational communion with God, but the basis for this relationship is entirely different. I think for the pop American view, the basis is to bring God down to our size, to to make God like some kind of cosmic butler. But for the Christian, the basis for our familiarity with God is, is not our bringing God down to us, but by means of Jesus Christ, bringing us up to God. Buddy or, or butler-like familiarity with God is, is hardly the picture of God that we see in, in Scripture or really anywhere else in the ancient world. I don't think you can seriously read the creation account in Genesis or the flood narrative or the Red Sea story or the encounter the people of Israel have with God at Mount Sinai and think, yeah, the big guy upstairs, he's super chill. I think when you hear of your God literally consuming entire cities with a giant fireball, you, you might think, I'm going to be pretty careful when I'm dealing with this God. Or take ancient Greek thought, and, and I don't mean like the, the willy-nilly gods, I mean more like the pure philosophical Greek thought, like we see, for instance, in Plato's Symposium. If you recall in, in the Symposium, Socrates is having a conversation with Diotima, where she sketches this strict divide between the divine realm and this mortal realm. And she utters a phrase that Lewis, again, in the discarded image, tells us has influenced over a millennium of of Western thought. In describing the distinction between the mortal and the immortal, Diotima says, God with man does not mingle. Or as Lewis quotes from the second century Apuleius, no God converses with humans. In these two ancient modes of thinking about God, God is other, God is foreign, 
God is transcendent, and, and we better approach God very carefully, if at all. So what both Diotima and the Hebrew Old Covenant proposes in order to bridge this seemingly impossible chasm is a mediator, a mediator to stand between God and us humans in order that we might have some hope of conversing with God. Plato's Diotima proposes that love stands between the mortals and the immortals. Love is as a great spirit, neither divine nor mortal, but whose power is to be, as she says, interpreting and transporting human things to the gods and divine things to men, entreaties and sacrifices from below, and ordinances and requitals from above. That's Symposium Section 202. Now this, I think, is, is not unlike the system that God established through Moses for the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. The mediators in that system, however, are not a quasi-divine entity, but rather it's the Levitical priestly class, at the pinnacle of which is the high priest. And in fact, what Diotima says of love might aptly be said of the high priest as well, one who interpreted and transported human things to God and divine things to humans. This activity of the high priest culminated in the annual entrance into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Neither the Hebrew nor the Platonic system abandons God's transcendent otherness as a way to bridge the chasm between us and God, but also I think neither framework goes quite far enough. Rather, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, which we read from tonight, builds on these foundations to show that our hopes for familiarity with God rests not in bringing God down to us, but in Christ bringing us into the very presence of God. We humans indeed can converse with God in and through Jesus Christ. In our reading from the letter to the Hebrews, uh, we might say that the author is uh, providing a sort of a theological commentary on the death of Christ and how his death offers us humans a, a unique medium to converse with God. We've heard about the death of Christ. We heard the narrative. We know the story. Our Isaiah reading uh, illuminates the depth of the pain, the, the humiliation, and the inhumanity of what Christ was afflicted with in his passion and death. And the author of Hebrews comes alongside this to paint a picture for what this death actually does for us. And in Hebrews, there's this recurring motif uh, about how the Old Covenant practices, the ceremonies, even the physical structures, were foreshadowing what Christ would bring about in his life, death, and resurrection. In fact, the author describes them not just as foreshadowing, but even as shadows in good Platonic fashion. When you see a shadow, you're seeing the shape, the outline, the contour of a real object. If you're standing by the corner of a building and you see someone's shadow coming around, you know that this points to the truth of some real person whom you haven't seen yet. For the author of Hebrews, the tabernacle, the holy place, the law, these are all shadows that point to a true reality. Now, shadow is not insignificant. Pointers are helpful for the one who needs to be pointed. But they do pale or fade away in comparison when the real object comes to the fore. We might not have all the contours of the Old Testament, uh, uh, Old Covenant system in our minds here as much as the original readers of Hebrews would have had, but the author does remind us of some of the key aspects of this system. Here's a bit from chapter 9. The, the author of Hebrews says, The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. In there, there were two rooms in that tabernacle, the holy place 
and behind a curtain was the most holy place. The author goes on, The priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their duties, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once per year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed. For the ancient Israelites, it was in the most holy place, behind the curtain in the tabernacle. That was the only location where anyone, and really only the high priest, could converse with God. And the high priest was only able to do this once per year, and he would plead the blood of the sacrificed animals as he interceded for himself and for the people. So there was a, a fleeting nature, and a rather distant nature, by which the people were connected to God. The author goes on in here in chapter 10, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. So the author intimates that this system was adequate, but, but more was needed. What's needed is a once-for-all mediator to bridge the gap between us and God. And this we have in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says, But our high priest, that is Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. I wonder if you caught the radical idea in here. The author says, Our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins. Jesus is both the mediator and the sacrifice. He's the priest and the offering. It's his blood that was shed, but he shed it of his own accord in order to bring us up to God. And here then is where I see some of the real payoff to satisfy our desire to converse with God. Because of the work of Christ as priest and sacrifice, verse 19 from our reading, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have Jesus as our great high priest, let us go right into the presence of God with pure hearts, fully trusting him. See, Plato's diatoma didn't go quite far enough, and the high priest of the Levitical system didn't go quite far enough. I think Diadema's intuition was spot on with seeing love as a mediator between God and humans, but what she didn't see was what John the beloved disciple tells us in his first letter and in his gospel, that God is love, and that this love who is God became flesh, became a human being, and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ. The Levitical priests brought the people to God and God to the people, but they only did so in a fleeting and temporary fashion. In Jesus, not only does God mingle with humans, God and humanity are fused together in the person of Jesus Christ, whose once-for-all sacrifice forever opened a direct line to converse with the Almighty God of the universe. I think we humans have a natural impulse to converse with God, a drive to be connected to God, even be familiar with God. But in order to satisfy this appropriate desire, our contemporary culture has brought God down to our size, knocked him down a few pegs to make him seemingly easier to relate with. But this is a raw deal. This is just the opposite of what we need. 
familiarity with God in pop culture and in Christianity is the likeness of unlike things. We don't need to be buddies with an impotent genie God who's been brought down to our size. Instead, we can converse with the almighty transcendent God of the universe because in and through the shed blood of Christ, our great high priest, we can rocket ship straight to the most holy place, the very dwelling place of God. In a few moments, we're, we're going to pray the solemn collects of Good Friday. This ancient practice seizes on the idea that we can boldly go straight to the throne room of Almighty God. The author of Hebrews tells us elsewhere that Jesus, our great high priest, is always making intercession for us to the Father, always serving as our mediator. And for those of us who are joined to Christ by baptism, we can always, and at all times and in all places, bring our cares through the blood of Christ to the presence of God. Yet especially this night, when we commemorate that death that opened to us the way of life, we join with Christ, raising our prayers to the Father in and with the prayers of the Son. We go with the Son before our God to present to him the needs of the world and our own individual needs, not because we're particularly important or special, but only because we've been joined to Christ, our only mediator and advocate. So I invite you, as we come now to pray, to converse with God, to join your prayers with Christ's and with the prayers of the whole church across the world, to plead for God's mercy, provision, care, and love. Amen. <laughs>